What is going on, folks? Thank you so much for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Please go to iTunes, leave us some reviews. It's always great seeing those. If you're still looking for that great hunt this fall and winter, look no further. Stanfield Hunting Outfitters, come with us. www.stanfieldhunting.com. Got take care of you on anything you want. Uh, waterfowl, dove, duck, hog, pheasant, deer. You name it, we can take you up and put, put you on the birds, the animal, whatever you want to do. Holler at us. we got some specials. I'm going to have some October pheasant and dove specials. Come in, $250, do an afternoon dove hunt, spend the night, breakfast, next morning do a pheasant hunt for $250. And that's a four-gun minimum on that hunt. I can do that in September and October. I've got some dates left in November, not a lot for waterfowl hunting. I can do some duck hunts still in Texas and in Oklahoma. So anyways, look us up at stanfieldhunting.com, and that's 940-658-3172. Thank you. Well, you even ended with a little thank you. How I'm nice. Trying to change my ways, Andy. This podcast is also brought to you by Dive Bomb Industry. The best. The best silhouettes on the market. Got the new skinny shirt. That's right. That's a good looking t-shirt. Good looking hashtag. They've been have they've uh, they've had that in the bag for quite a while. Um can't say enough about Dive Bomb. They're what we use every day, seven days a week. They pass the torture test. Rain, snow, sleet, mud, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, the steak system is just the greatest. The bags, they pack up. Can't say enough about them. They're kicking ass is what they're doing. Go to divebombindustries.com. Go with the numbers this year, guys. Big numbers of decoys means more birds in your bag. Divebombindustries.com. We're also brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Only takes one. It only takes one. They're changing the game. Business is back in style. Everybody's coming out with their own bismuth line, but remember that the guys at Boss brought it to you first, and they made it better, quite frankly. All made in America, Brandon Sarecki and the guys over there. I shouldn't say guys because Meg's over there. Kicking ass, taking names. They had a great great weekend at, uh, at uh, Game Fair, I saw. Absolutely great. Uh, only takes one, like Jeff said. They're copper plating all of their BBs. Holds a denser pattern. More BBs on target. No shotgun shell boxes either. That's right. That's right. They're just innovative. Innovative is the word. Go to BossShotShells.com or call them. You might not get off the phone with them because they can talk. They know their shit. But uh, get your shotgun shells for this year because it's coming up quickly. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Best spinners on the market. Waterproof. Yeah, you can't shoot field mallards without some spinners. Lucky Duck's the way to go. And if you're shooting Phil Mallage, you know, not a whole lot of water, which is even better. But, yeah, go to uh, LuckyDuck.com, get all of the spinners. The more spinners, the better. Like Jeff said, if you're hunting those Phil Mallards or Phil Ducks, you need at least a half a dozen spinners. Lucky Duck can hook you up. LuckyDuck.com, the way to go. We're also brought to you by 737. The boys in Oklahoma making that duck call just sweet, sweet sound. Direct to your door. No more big box stores or anything like that. You go straight to them. They send you a duck call the next day. Color combos, all kinds. They can etch what you want on there. They got logos they can put on there. They'll take care of you. I blow the old number one. That right there should be enough for everybody else. <laughs> what, what's that little hmm, Endorsed for? by Jeff. That's right. Se- 737 duck calls. You can pick out what you want. Only call I've ever endorsed. That's right. Only ever. company that would ever let me endorse their call. It really, <laughs> really is. But yeah, 737duckcalls.com, and they can get it out to you. Great customer service. Quick, fast, and in a hurry. All of our guys, all of our sponsors, folks, great customer service. They'll take care of you. Every one of them. Uh, we're also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. 
There's no more sense. There's no sense at all to set a decoy spread out in the dark. Modern technology, put, the, put these lights everywhere. Put them on your truck, on your trailer. Light it up. Turn that switch on and light that puppy up. That way you can see exactly what you're doing. No more. That's, you know, that's the number one cause of breaking your decoys is tripping over them. Turn on those lights. You're saving decoys that way. Think of it that way. Saving your investment. SeaLightLEDs.com. They're what we use. Put them on your trailer, folks. There ain't nothing worse than having a bunch of guys with headlamps blinding each other. Set up on the, the trailer. They're up in the air a little bit. It shines down on like being in a football stadium. And this show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics, also a U.S. made. Athlon Optics is a proud U.S. sports optic product company devoted to designing and delivering superior quality optic products and outdoor accessories at a competitive price to you, the consumer. Athlon has strong engineering design capability, strategic alliances with quality manufacturers, and a streamlined, fully integrated supply chain. Whether you're shooting prairie dogs or scouting those geese or ducks the night before, Athlon Optics has a product that you need. So go to athlonoptics.com, get your binoculars, get your scopes. They've also got red dot sights. They got it all. If you need to look through it so you can shoot something or find something, Athlon Optics is the way to go. Last but not least, we're brought to you by William and Chris Wines. Texas wine. Good wine. I like wine. WilliamandChrisWines.com. And pick whatever, you know, whatever Chris has got made at the time. You can pick it. He'll ship it to you. They're the best. I love it. Good Texas wine. Or if you're at HEB, Whole Food, Central Market, any of those types of places, you can find it there. But yeah, WilliamandChrisWines.com. Great stuff if you're a wine drinker. Even if you're not a wine drinker, it can turn you into a wine drinker. WilliamandChrisWines.com. All right, on this episode of the podcast, we're joined by American hero and all-around badass Seth Yon. Uh, you can look up everything he's got going on on his Instagram, Seth Yon, J-A-H-N underscore I-X. Uh, man's a world traveler. Uh, he, he's, uh, he fights poachers over in Africa and all over the world. He's uh, joined the military Played on the, the U.S. soccer team. I mean, he is just an all-around badass. Does not settle for mediocrity. And this is an interesting podcast. We appreciate him coming on. And uh, here we go. We hope you enjoy it. Seth Yon. Here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And this is a special 9-11 podcast we're going to do. We're going to have a veteran on with us, Mr. Seth Yon. We're going to talk about his tra- travels, his life, all the sacrifices he's made for our country. It's a very important date in history of our country. Um, actually, other than December 7th, 1941, it's probably the the most important we've dealt with in a, over in a hundred years. Anyway, Seth, how are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing well, sir. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to, to bring me on. 
We're excited to have you. I was uh, scrolling through your Instagram, and I got to ask you, first off the jump, is there anything in this world that you're afraid of? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to just go with that cliche answer of, uh, of failure, man. It's kind of what's driven me throughout my my adolescence all the way into my adulthood, man. I, and, and honestly, I think it was derived from like this deep-seated insecurity when I was young, man. I was a, a small kid, small in stature, always got made fun of, and but I uh, had had a bit of a temper and always trying to prove myself, and and, um, and so I, I think that I, you know, having that insecurity would kind of uh, from a young age actually what really drove me to always just uh, strive to be number one in whatever I had to do, and it wasn't like this this pure reason. It was just because I just felt like I always had to prove myself. But. So creepy crawly critters, that, that's that's no problem for you. Just failure. Oh no, nah, man! They, you know, I I actually enjoy like you know engaging myself with with the most apex predators on this planet. You know, once you go through so much training throughout your life, and, and you see so many capable men, you know, washing washing out here and there, and uh, whether it's in the military or the government or whatever the case may be, um, you know, it, it's 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 difficult not to come out of the other side without a little bit of an inflated ego. <laughs> and I was so fortunate in my service to, to have just remarkable men taking me under the wing, men who are so much more highly accomplished than I was, had, uh, every type of training, every type of, you know, uh, uh, education, and spoke multiple languages, doctorates, you know, just incredible resumes. And uh, and they had implemented humility in their character, and I was like, man, who who the hell am I to act this way when this guy is like, I don't even deserve to be in his, you know, <laughs> shiny shoes, is uh, is humble, you know. So, anyways, yeah, I um, I've I've kind of, um, but on the other side of that, I've, I've always just liked to, to to push the envelope a little bit, and and um, and you know, again with with uh, the men men no longer uh, fight me. I've been that had a lot of money invested into me to ensure that I'm, I'm typically one of the baddest dudes in, in the, in the, uh, in the area to get the job done. So that kind of thing doesn't really fight me too much. All right, Seth, uh, let's go, let's jump right into your story. Now I want to talk about, you grew up in Florida, correct? Yes, sir. I was, uh, I was born in, in, uh, Bradenton area. I grew up in the Panhandle, a small little island town called Gulf Breeze. And then, Went to high school in Lakeland, Florida, and, and been in out, out of the Tampa Bay area um, since. So a kid from Lakeland, Florida, or, or or Gulf Breeze, turns out to be a world class soccer player. So so you played soccer in school, and after high school, you, you went to college in soccer, right? Yes, sir. Um, I wouldn't say I was world class. Um, I was fortunate to, to be. <laughs> but, um, I um, but I. I do. I never had any inclination of doing anything but professional sport. When I was in high school, I was obsessed. I mean, anything that I kind of I wanted to do, I just fixated on it, and, and that just became my sole goal. I was a, a maniac when it came to training in high school, and my discipline when it came to training, and, and uh, scholarship for soccer in North Carolina and uh, St. Andrews University. I had a pretty successful freshman uh, season, and ended up being drafted by uh, signed professionally on the South America first step and uh, yeah goes on from there so you went you, you played pro soccer then you got invited to trap for team USA and you, you you made the team USA squad correct 
Yes, sir. It was, uh, again, pretty unconventional route compared to most of my teammates who played college ball or pro ball or club ball throughout the entirety of their career. Um, I left uh, pro sport after my first season. You know, 9-11 had just happened, and, and um, I, I just uh, I was working in the back of my mind, and, and I, to be perfectly honest with you, I came to a place where I just didn't want to play a game to define my life, and, and it sort of propelled me into a more service-oriented career field I joined the military uh, later on, and I got injured, got beat up pretty good, um, and, you know, I kind of got back into sport as an athletic rehab piece, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I made some club teams when I was living in Europe. I got the, got the attention of the U.S. national team, got me, gave me a uh, uh, call to come try out the U.S. Olympic Training Center to the Vista and uh, had a pretty successful try and um, ended up, you know, uh, I kind of had that, again, that decision to make of uh, I was coming full circle. I was at the pinnacle of my career at that point uh, within the intelligence community, and um, I, I just, uh, it was hard to justify leaving that to, to go to sport, but as I said, I was injured, I was paralyzed for a year, and just put into perspective uh my fervor for life at that point, laying in the hospital bed, being broken in every dynamic, and, and realizing how finite our time is on this earth, and not and to truly cherish every opportunity we have, seize every opportunity, cherish every interaction. And, and here I was in that that position where I was like, I will regret not going for this. You know, after I made the final roster for my trial uh, of, of not joining the U.S. national team, and they had a real shot at going to Rio, the top nine teams go to Rio. I was at the time that. Uh, uh, or the top eight teams go to Rio. We ranked ninth in the world. I'm like, man, these guys have a real shot. And um, so I ended up leaving. I was like, I can always come back to this community. Um, I actually got the game winner at the World Cup in England uh, against Scotland. Again, it was like the chintziest goal in the world. <laughs> but it was a, a powerful moment for me, man. Like, you know, uh, you know scoring a goal and uh, being after being told I'd never walk out paralyzed for a year and a half in, in, in 2010 from uh, Afghanistan. And, and um, we spent another year of athletic rehab. It's inpatient, man. I, again, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, every dynamic, I had to be broken. I had to be uh, to be humbled to to have the next chapter of my life revealed to me, you know, and, and what, what God had planned for me. So I I, um, I ended up, uh, you know, we qualified for, for Rio. We competed at Rio, and, and one of my first memories in Rio was in the opening ceremonies and, and we were in the tunnel getting ready to go into Maracana Stadium 80,000 people just, just singing and dancing and chanting and I remember seeing the American flag like you know kind of subtly waving in the tunnel perfectly silhouetted in the middle and um and I just I had this overwhelming like emotion I got choked up man I remember looking down at the, the U.S. crest on my chest and I'm thinking about the U.S. flag that was on my combat side shoulder when I was injured being pulled again. I never walked in. Here I am around team USA delegations, most phenomenal countries in their, or most phenomenal athletes in their respective sports in our country. And, and it was just a humbling moment, man. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's how I ended up getting back in the sport. Now, what you mentioned earlier, you, uh, you were 240 at the time uh, of, your, of your accident in Afghanistan. What did you play soccer at? What weight? Oh man, it was not uh, that, that weight was not conducive uh, for uh, <laughs> uh, professional soccer for sure, man. I had to cut down to about two hundred five. Two hundred five to two fifteen is where I fluctuated as an athlete, and, and that's still pretty pretty heavy for for a soccer player. Um, but uh, I was, I'm actually like probably the biggest um, guy in seven side football in the world. 
because uh, in, in the Lima games, I just competed at the uh, Pan Am games in Lima, Peru, 2019 uh, Lima games. And I uh, came in at 6'3", 6'4", 2'25", so. But, yeah, so my game is kind of evolved into being a, a, a dynamic player into being more of a target striker. How I describe my position uh, whenever I do interviews is, um, you know, everybody does all the hard work on the field and I get all the the glory for it. <laughs> well, that's all right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect position if you ask me. Yeah, man. It's, it's, hey, man, it's, it's hard to keep up with these young kids. I got to cheat now, man. I got to throw elbows, you know, I got to trip them up, you know, whatever I got to do. Oh, shit, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty much on the team just to toss bodies around now. <laughs> <laughs> what, may, what, what made you decide to join? When, when, tell, tell us about your your military career what how'd you get into that what made you decide to to, to it's sign kind of up? a funny story honestly um again i i, I was I, I didn't know what i want what kind of service i wanted to do i was interested in the military when i left pro sport i joined the fire service i became a firefighter actually um and for like for a year and, and i was um one of the guys i was sparring with we were, we were boxers both boxers in college and he had um commissioned as an officer in rotc and I got the best of him this particular day, and as any good friend should, talking a little bit of shit to him, you know, and he's <laughs> like, all right, man, it's bad. He's like, what's going on me? And I was like, huh. So that's what I did. Literally the next week, I joined the Army, man. And um, I didn't know anything about the military. I, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I just had no idea. So I, I ended up going in the same route he was. I was a gunner on an M1 Abrams tank initially. I, and, and to be perfectly honest with you, um, I, I just wasn't happy with the, the, the training, with the leadership, with, um, with, uh, the camaraderie, I, it, you know, there's, there's great, like, I just had a, a more fantastical idea of what the military was at the time. And, and it just didn't rate in my opinion at the time. And now this was my experience within the conventional units. And I know there's phenomenal conventional units, um, but I just knew I wanted to, wanted more and so that's what kind of propelled me to serve within the special operations career fields and uh special operations regiment i i ended up spending pretty much the entirety of my career with uh with 20 special forces group and um and so yeah um, when i first was exposed to them i was like where have y'all been my whole career just physically mentally emotionally every dynamic just operated on another level they were just they were elite and what did they do in my life What's that? What what jobs? I mean, what 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 does that detail? That special operations. What are y'all doing? So within special forces regiment, there's a they have a number of, of different core missions. Everything from direct action to foreign internal defense to unconventional warfare to uh, uh, special reconnaissance. Similar uh, There's multiple different teams. Each team has a different specialty in how they embed or how they infiltrate countries. Um. And so it's kind of a dynamic career field. You know, with a lot of different, um, a, a lot of different cross training and things like that as well. So, it, it, it for a guy who has career ADD like me, it, it was it definitely facilitated my, you know, my aspirations to, to, to appease my my boredom, I suppose. And right. and um, and again, man, like they were just they were just the best. They were just the best our, our country had to offer. And it was a uh, um, an honor to to serve alongside those guys. So. So how do you make the initial jump from from just being you know just just in the military to now where you're you're going special operations? How do you how do you make that transition? Oh, a lot of discipline, man. Like I, I had to uh, I had to really uh, put 
prepare my mind and my body for uh, for the rigors of, of what serving within those units would entail and even getting into those units. So um, before going to uh, 20 Special Forces Group, I actually joined what's called an NQP. I think it's called SFRE now, Special Forces Resistance Evaluation. At the time, it was called NQP, Non-Qualified Personnel, and they prepared that for FFA, Special Forces Assessment and Selection. And they perfectly honestly, it was, just, it was probably, again, it's probably the most, some of the most physically arduous things I've ever endured. I, I had I probably spent about a year and a half preparing my body for for um, for that move. I, I mean, a lot of running, a lot of running, building my, my, my physicality up. Um, I, I was extreme with it, too. You know, I, you know, everybody said, take care of your feet. I live in Florida. As you guys know, Texas boys, man, the asphalt is pretty dang hot, man. So yep. I, I would throw, a, I would throw a, a light rookie, like 35 pounds or so. I, I'd walk barefoot on the asphalt until I just couldn't take it anymore and then walk in the grass. And then walk in the asphalt, uh, asphalt until I just couldn't take it anymore and walk in the grass. And my feet were like freaking leather by the time I was ready. <laughs> I was. I looked into sleep deprivation. I was. Uh, I was found sleep deprivation studies in East Asia that really interest me, um, and because I knew I'd be going through a significant amount of sleep deprivation, and, and being able to function on a very high level with minimal sleep was was imperative as well. So, um, just fine tuning all those things, man. I, I surrounded myself with guys that've been there and done that, and and, um, and really just adhere to their counsel as subject matter experts. And the rest is history. Now, do you still, uh, the, the sleep deprivation, do you still kind of run on less hours of sleep than the normal American, or do you oh, get your full sure, eight man. hours? I get, I get a lot of grief from, from the national team, all the guys on those teams, because they sleep like freaking, like little girls, man, eight <laughs> to ten hours a day. Like, they're sleeping all night, and they take naps in the day. I can't do any of that. I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do any of that. But, you know, the thing is, man, I, I always think that sleep is such a waste of time, though, man, like. I um I was like, geez, like how, you know the percentage that we spend sleeping in our in again in, in our one shot on this earth there's one life on this earth uh, to, to, this is this is the premise behind it is the sleep studies that so is that you can you know uh, these people are sleeping eight hours of sleep well the majority of that sleep is is it, within their light sleep cycle is superfluous sleep it requires to to get your your physical recovery. Um, it is within um, your deep sleep cycle, and that's, most people spend about an hour and a half to two hours and 15 minutes within their deep sleep cycle. Because your cognitive recovery is in your REM cycle, where most people spend 45 minutes to an hour and a half. So if you can cut out all the superfluous sleep and get straight to your REM cycle, straight to your deep sleep cycle, now the margin of error obviously is a much more uh, you know, finite, but um, it will uh, allow you to, to function you know, we're on the same level as them with a lot less sleep. How do you how do you train yourself to get to that REM cycle faster? So it took it took me about uh, just over maybe a year, like fifteen months or so, till I really got. I, I started. I got my mean sleep with my average sleep, which was six hours and forty seven minutes. And then for for three weeks, I'd sleep for six hours. For four weeks, I'd sleep for for uh, for six hours. For four weeks, I'd sleep for five and a half hours. And, and then there's those different exercises that they would have you do before sleep that would essentially prepare your body or, or, or um, stimulate certain parts of your body or deactivate certain parts of your body and your mind um, to uh, allow you to transition to deep sleep cycle and REM cycle uh, right away. And I'm going to say it works for everybody, but it took, you know, being disciplined and sticking with it, and I worked my way all the way down to just under three hours a night. And I was, and that's, you know, putting a crap ton of miles, two-day gym sessions, 
sprint marches, runs, you know, swims, uh, you know, everything I was preparing for. So. Wow. I didn't now. Did you feel like shit as you were transitioning to get to you know as you're as you're j- gradually whittling the hours of sleep down? Did you feel like dog shit until you got oh, yeah. to <laughs> till you got to your it optimum? It, it you know it, it, it definitely did. But you know there is an old adage that I've taken in every single aspect of my career is is um you know everything worth having requires sacrifice. True. And yeah, I, you know, in that particular instance, you know, the sleep was the sacrifice in order to, to, uh, in my, you know, uh, just that discomfort of, of working under duress, you know, so. The feet thing is what gets me. I got sensitive fucking feet. And I know how hot <laughs> the sidewalk and asphalt is here. 110 degrees <laughs> during the summertime. My ass ain't yeah, going any. I ain't going on the track unless I got shoes on. <laughs> It ain't yeah, exactly, man. I'm a clean professional, man, you know, uh, so I don't know what my problem is. I, I, all the doctors on the, um, on the Houston, the medical staff, we always have more staff on the national team than we can players or athletes. And, and so whenever there's, like, I have a niggle or I have, like, some type of little injury or something like that, they, they have, okay, so is this, the, is this, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 and, and not the 1 to 10, the typical one that is uh, pain <laughs> scale, but the soft pain scale. Right. <laughs> yeah. you sit right now, my, my, my pain tolerance is a little uh, warped, I think. So you said earlier that you were you were bullied as a kid, but you're 6'4 now. How, when did the tides turn to where you go from being bullied to where, you know, you're, you're basically like the fucking punisher to these guys? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I, I remember it very clearly, and um, only one other person has ever asked me that in an interview. And, um, and it, it was, a, uh, again, I was a super insecure kid. I was just skinny. I was, uh, I, I, you know, I grew up in an island town, and I moved that more to Central Florida. I was exposed to drugs and gangs, and it was a culture shock for me. And my, my sister was like, you know, she developed very young, threats of uh, rape and sexual all these things. I just felt so helpless, man. I remember we were at a pool, a public pool, and, um, and these, these uh, you know, three, uh, there were three guys that came up to her, and, uh, and we were the only, uh, I would say, you know, we were the only white people there, mm-hmm. me and my sister, so we definitely stood out, and, and, um, and you know, three of them went and were sexually assaulting her, like, they were you know, about to put their hands on her, and they were saying what they were going to do to her. And, and I remember I jumped, jumped out of the pool, and I, I ran up to him. And you know, I, I I didn't know how to fight, but I had a temper. You know, I I never backed down. I got my butt kicked a lot because of that combination. It wasn't really conducive to <laughs> the conflict resolution. <laughs> but um, I um, my um, I just remember at that point, my sister looked at me, and she knew that there was absolutely nothing I could do. And and I. Bro, I gotta tell you, man, it, it changed my life. It was one of those things. Remember, I was talking about like the the, the, the two aspects that would change the essence of a man. That I wrote a, wrote a paper about in my undergraduate work about essentially either a traumatic event or an epiphany. Yeah, this was a, a, a traumatic event. We all have different capacities for trauma. This was a traumatic event for me as, as a kid. I was in ninth grade and a, a, you know a young you know teenager, and my sister looked at me and knew there was absolutely nothing I could do. And I knew there was nothing I could do, and I've I've never felt more helpless in my life. And I and I made a I, I literally and it sounds pathetic and weak and all this. I'm just being honest with you, boys. Like I cried for three nights over that 
of yeah. how pathetic I felt. And I made a promise to myself that I will never, ever have anybody I care about look at me the way my sister looked at me. They will know that they will have confidence that I will be able to protect them, that I'll be able to, to handle business if the time comes. That I'll be the guy that they turn to when the time comes. And it drove me, man. Like, I got into boxing. I got in. I developed my hands. And I was just a girl, girl, like I said. And that's what... I, I, I always was never settled for mediocrity. But the only one thing I fixate on, like if I missed a jump shot, you know, playing pickup ball, I would go stay after it and I would shoot that shot four, five hundred, six hundred times until I was just consistently nailing it. And um, it was the same thing with every aspect of my life. And and, um, and so that was the moment to answer your question where, where I just uh, I, I wanted to be, you know, I, I'm a man of faith, and um, and I believe uh, I believe God has His warriors too. And um, and I wanted to be uh, a tool for him, and I and, and for 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 a mission for for not to sound corny and cliche, but I know guys go in for different reasons for in the military and in the service, but um, mine was truly to serve, man. And um, and uh, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to be putting myself in where people's lives are dependent on on my decision and my preparation, then I sure as hell better be ready for that. When I go to the gym. I'm not looking. I'm looking at all these freaking douchebags, looking at in the mirror, flexing with your little freaking, you know, so they look pretty in their phones for spring break. <laughs> and you know what I'm thinking about is, is you know, is the dude who I'm going to be facing on the battlefield in some austere environment somewhere in the world, after Middle East or wherever, who is training right now, right now as we speak, guys. There's a guy training to kill me. And, and soon he's going to me. And I sure as hell... I'm going to be more prepared than he is. And if that doesn't motivate you to go, like, get off your ass and, and push yourself to, to the extreme, then nothing will. You know what I mean? But if, and I know it's an extreme perception, but that's that's kind of what I've, I've had to implement. Like, extremities have kind of become my normal throughout my career. And, and that's been one of the struggles, to be honest with transitioning back into civilian life of, of uh, uh, you know, you know, people look at my story and look at my family. This has just been kind of normal. These, all these crazy things have been going on. My life is just normal to me. And then I go and people are like very interested in hearing about it. And they're, and they're like, they're looking at me with their mouths open. <laughs> 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 and they hear my story. And I, 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 I turn around and I'm like, man, it, I, I understand that it's, my story is hard to relate to. But the thing I always want to bring it back to is that we all have our own capacity for trauma. We all have our own things we need to overcome. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, and, and, and but the, the only difference between the thing I always say whenever I do speaking engagements or anything like that is like, there's absolutely nothing special about me. I have an ordinary dude who just continues to push myself in extraordinary situations. You know, just maximize that opportunity. I don't quit. And, and that's the natural tendency. When things become difficult, things become arduous, what's the natural tendency is to find the path of least resistance or to quit. But if you punch the next time of failure, you're going to open yourself up to a whole other plane of, of focus, of, of ambition, of motivation, of performance, and ultimately of results. And, and so when, when I just put, put in, in those words that there's nothing special about it, if you want it, it's yours to take it. You know what I mean? You're just not picking one thing. And you can't, and you can't quit, man. That's it. So yeah. Do you still think about that time at the pool? Like, if you're dragging ass or something in the gym, do do you still think about that, or have you have you uh, plenty? Have you got plenty of other shit that'll get you kind of fired up and ready to go? Oh yeah, that's a great question, man. Um, to answer to to, to be perfectly honest, you know, I don't really think about that anymore. I, I, over the years, 
um, losing friends and, and seeing some of the atrocities that are, are committed against innocent people all throughout this world from the most vile, predacious, prey, just pathetic, weak individuals who prey on innocent um, has provided more than enough motivation for me to, yeah. to use in, in, in that capacity for sure. I mean, I got a you know you've seen you've seen the absolute worst in human beings. I mean, I'm sure you've got plenty of ammo up there. You know, if you need a little kick in the ass in the gym to kind of dig a little deeper, I'm sure I'm sure you don't have to look very far. <laughs> no, sir, not at all, man. How, how long did you spend overseas? Uh, I have two and a half years cumulatively in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, however, um, later on, I, 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 I three plus, three and a half years as a government contractor, and then I lived in Africa for two years. And to be perfectly honest with you, man, people have no idea what the hell's going on in Africa. I, I have two and a half years on ODF, OF, and the atrocities I witnessed in Africa far surpassed anything that I witnessed in, in those areas of operations. But you never hear about it, man. Is why, it, why is is it the warlords or is it the Muslims? What is it over there that's doing that? It's a great great question. I, I, I really feel like I could write a book on it, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes of, of my experience in there. I know this sounds crazy as hell when I'm about to tell you, but it just is what I believe it is after my experience of living with these within these tribes and living, you know, in the bush of Africa within four, you know, I lived within four countries as a counterpoacher um, within these, uh, a variety of anti-poachers as a team leader. And, um, and my conclusion was black medicine, black magic, man. I know that sounds absolutely crazy, but there's three different levels of potency within the black medicine, right? And I truly believe that all the incredible amount of natural resources that they have and all these different uh, assets that these countries have, why is it in such a regressive state, uh, this perpetual regressive state is because of this, this black magic that just plagues these, these countries, and it infects every aspect of, of government, of law enforcement. There's three different levels of potency within black medicine. There's plant-based, plant-animal-based, which is more exotic than animal, more potent than medicine, is plant-human-based. That's right. They actually use humans for their medicine, and it's just well throughout the continent. I'm not just talking about isolated incidents. There's, you're talking about, um, you know, uh, so there's four different levels of potency within the plant-human-based. There's black being least potent, children, then whites, and then albino black being the most potent. So they call it a hootie murder. You never hear about it. M-U-T-H-I. And, uh, and these people are, are killed all the time, but they can't report it. That's why there's no data or no statistics on, this, on these numbers. It becomes a, a part of their life because of the, the, the amount of corruption that is just rife throughout the, uh, these government and law enforcement entities. When I was working with the intelligence team, I go and provide them the stuff that they So the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm setting this appointment up with you and then the intelligence team is not within the you know, the local law enforcement is because I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the organization, but one point of the 50% chance it ends up in corrupt candy. That says, let me stop you right there. It's an 80% chance that it ends up in corrupt candy. So if these people go and report that their child was just abducted and murdered and chopped up for, for uh, body parts for their, their black medicine, then they're, they're killed, and so is another member of the family killed. So there's no data on it. And there's no reporting on it. There is, it's in the middle of it. You know, the bush is, is, is crazy. I had a preparation, published that, separate conversation, everything. Uh, if you're, you're, you're reactive and not fight, then you've already lost. You have to be proactive. You have to develop those intelligence networks, those uh, personality matrices, those link diagrams, those activity matrices, in order to, to, to paint a picture of the syndicate, because there's a very comparable composition to that of, like, a cartel. Um, 
but they're terrorist organizations. Forty percent of Al Shabaab and Boko Haram operational funding via poaching. The two most valuable commodities in the world run over and pay on scale. More than any drug, gym, stone, or anything like that. In the black market, I'm buying all these things up. I have opportunities to buy people, man. We have all these freaking pussy, you know, social justice warriors, God bless them, you know, who screamed about slavery 150 years ago that 3% of the population was responsible for. When there are 23 million people enslaved in Africa right now, Jeez. an active human slave trade, I could have bought people. I had an opportunity to buy people. And nobody talks about that because it doesn't fit the divisive narrative that, you know, I'm sorry I'm getting political here, but, but the mainstream media is continually putting out, you know, and, and it's a very real war. Like these, the, the atrocities, again, that I witnessed, the, the pure barbaric, you know, methodology is, is it was just pure evil, man. It, it is far worse than anything I witnessed in our country. But you're right, it's a perversion of mysticism and Islam. They're manifestos, the black magic and all these. Like, I, I, before I was serving as a counterpoacher in the government, I was embedded within certain um, uh, host entities, uh, indigenous forces in contention with this, like, um, uh, organizations like the LRA, Lord Resistance Army, Joseph Cohen's guys, again, some of those evil, vile dudes on this planet. And I could write Again, just a whole book about my experience there. And I want to expose like what's happening, man, and and it's just it's just sad, man. It truly is. I mean, Africa has such a unique way of getting into your bloodstream. But what do you uh you you were big on uh, helping fight against the poachers, and it's what, what's that? Can you say it again? I'm sorry. You 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 were helping fight against the poachers. The guys getting the rhinos. And the elephants and stuff. How 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 does that work? As a, do y'all just go? Did, did did you work for like the a fish and game service, or is there a private entity that's doing it? Who did you work for when you're? So good question. There's, first of all, there's two different types of poachers. You have the meat poachers, or typically people who are just trying to feed their their villages. I'm not going to be pulling the trigger on somebody like that. You know that they, they're going to get slapped on the hand. It's illegal, obviously. But then you have the Ellie, the elephant and rhino poachers. Those guys are contracted terrorists. They're, they 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 serve the terrorist fields within those areas. They usually run around with suppressed weapons, with night vision, um, you know, all, all of that. So, um, yes, I've, I, I, to both those questions, I've worked on both sides. I have supported um, countries and their uh, their anti poaching units, and I've also worked for private. Uh, "Quote unquote nonprofit um, organizations as well. And some of those organizations are, are very exploitive and manipulative, and, and they're not doing the job they're saying they're doing on, on different uh, social media. But then there's some that that are just, I mean, they are out there putting it all on the line, day in and day out, living in the bush um, with minimal equipment, minimal un, under weapons. Uh, you know, their their weapons are inadequate for it, but they're they're out there, you know." putting on the line for these animals. And, and the fact of the matter is, like, there are significant ramifications for, for poaching, not just in the Africa. I mean, the African economy, uh, obviously, like, the tourism would, would, would diminish significantly with, with the eradication of these animals that are in such decline. Like, um, you know, but other animals would suffer. You know, like, I've learned so much about conservation. And, and this is the thing, like, I think that I'm not, um, I'm not a huge pro-Second Amendment guy. I'm a huge, uh, you know, uh, pro-advocate for hunting and all of that. Um, this is poaching. This is different, you know. 
nobody wants people coming on their land and poaching their animals. Uh, legal hunting is, is and, and every ecologist, every conservation I work with are advocates for hunting. You know, big game hunting and all these different things. Right. I could talk about that all day, too. So. Yeah. Now, what is what is it with the rhino horn? What what do they use it for? I've heard, what is it good for, like, yep. penises and shit, isn't it? Yeah. It's, Make it's your a dick bigger? Question, man. Like, Not bigger. So, so within oh. Africa, like, they, they do believe, like, there's the breedy aspect, you know, um, the, the black medicine, again, tries a lot of that, even with the human um, consumption. Um, the Asian market is what drives that business um, that. they believe it hold that the rhino horn holds medicinal properties which there's no uh you know scientific uh, uh validation behind that so um yes yeah, it's just all all clackery man to be perfect but you know one of the ways that we also uh, for me will, uh, if i'm working for private organizations to to there's a quid pro quo we're all going in bed within certain law for intelligence entities within those countries and i'll help um, run training courses for them, small unit tactics or weapon handling or combatives or, you know, uh, sensitive site exploitation or whatever the case may be. And, um, and it, they're very gracious with um, with me and whatever team I'm, I'm with operating in those areas of operation, too. Now, there's a picture on your Instagram. You're, you're, you're petting a lion. What the hell? What is, is this? Is the lion <laughs> tranquilized? It, what is it? <laughs> No, man, so, honestly, bro, like, I'm a Florida boy, man, like, you know, I served within the military and special operations, I served within the, the, like, the government, I served within law enforcement as a SWAT officer, and I always had lurking in the shadows of my mind, the political agenda behind my presence in some of these areas of operation. You know, when you're working at a strategic and national level, there's things that sometimes just don't add up, and I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't make me any less resolute in my mission. Um, and because I saw the positive ramifications of my presence in those areas of operations on a tactical level. Um, but with this, the mission was so pure. Um, again, you're directly combating terrorism. Two, you're having these extraordinary interactions with these animals. And three, you're helping mitigate the adverse ramifications of poaching as on the African economy. So with, with these uh, inter- interactions, I became a big animal lover when I was living. In, I've always been an animal lover, but what really spurred my, my love for animals was... Um, in Thailand, where I, it kind of motivated me to, to do, when I got injured, I got injured again in 2014. I got hit by a rocket in the Middle East. It wasn't nearly as bad as my first injury in 2010, but I did, I still had a punctured lung, rotator eardrum, uh, uh, mild traumatic brain injury. So I had, you know, a few months um, rehab, and my buddy actually took the brunt of the blast. He was using a lot more chips than I was. But at that point in my life, bro, like I had been sleeping and breathing warfare for the last decade of my life, and I just needed to decompress. And so, um, I, uh, I, I pretty much spun the globe and, and I moved to Thailand. I moved to Southern. I didn't hit the, hit the island, but it was the closest one to where my finger was. <laughs> and, um, and I, um, and so I, uh, I moved to Southern Island of Thailand and Phuket. Um, I, I had a small hut in between Big Buddha Mountain and Monkey Mountain. Um, I had a beautiful view of the Ottoman Sea. I had a, I had a good savings, but I just wanted to live frugally. I just wanted to live simply. And, and, um, and so I went there. I was, I was training, um, and uh, to, to fight professionally there, I went there for MMA, but I couldn't get fights in my weight. I wanted to fight local fighters. I couldn't get fighters. They're, you know, smaller folk. <laughs> right. And so yeah. one of my buddies was fighting at a Muay Thai gym. He's like, man, we can get you fights in Muay Thai if you cut down to, you know, 207. And I was like, 205, 207. I was like, all right, man, I'll make that happen. I'm, you know, this is a once a lifetime opportunity. So I went and, um, I went and did that and just got my ass to your whole first by, by some, <laughs> some, High fighters, man, some bad dudes, and um, and 
But what was happening is I was donating my on my off time. I was volunteering at an elephant sanctuary and a tiger rescue. Nothing sexy. I was just you know just kind of grunt work really. And um, and when I was donating my fight proceeds to those sanctuaries and those rescues, and it allowed them to, after a couple months, it started seeing out passionate about it, and allowed me to have those interactions with these animals. And um, and so when I had an opportunity to go to uh, to Africa, you know, I I. I had an interesting conversation with one of the ecologists there, and you know, you know, because even the 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 vendor tribe they would call me, you know, crazy man and all these different things because of like I would push the envelope with with some of the interactions I had with the animal. And there's a lot of environmental considerations they have when they're giving their like the behavioral systems analysis and all these different things. Like, for example, an elephant will slap his 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 ears, and that might mean he's cooling himself, but it also can be a warning. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll do a, it's really interesting because they'll do a, uh, they'll fake eat, they'll act like they're eating, but they're just watching, they're just putting their trunk in their mouth and going back and forth to the tree. And then they'll do a mock charge where if their, their head is up, then they're going to pull out of, of the charge while he's standing around. If their head's down, it's, you're done. It's a bad day. And so there's, but that's just one example. So, so I was having, you know, some of the guys on the team, they, we had some, some different, um, leopard and lion rescues and things like that. And, um, and, and that cats would treat different guys different ways. Because I truly believe, that, and I'm sure you guys have had these interactions as well with cattle, with horses, with dogs, or whatever the case is, where, where they treat different people different ways. They, I, I truly believe like people, they feed off of your energy. And, and so there's actually, one of the ecologists had done a study at the University of Arizona where they actually have data to substantiate that now. They, did, they measured the magnetic fields and all these different energy fields around a human um, compared to a dog, a horse, um, and an elephant, I believe, were I, I want to say this, like, so humans was, was more into the space, dogs were broader, um, horses broader, and then elephants were a huge area. And so, um, you know, there's tons of different examples. I have videos of, like, of, of a buddy of mine next to a leopard rescue um, where he's walking along the gate. I'm standing right next to her, this leopard, and she's not even, she's just going about her business, licking her paw, whatever, and he, he was terrified of the cat. And so he's walking down the, 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 the line, and she leaves my side, doesn't even pay. I mean, I have my back door and everything. We videoed it. It's it hilarious. And he's like, tell me when she comes, bro, tell me she comes. I was like, all right, I'll tell you. She's already on the move. I didn't tell him. And <laughs> he turns around, and she's jumping up on the, uh, the cape. And so I did push the envelope a little bit, having those interactions with lions. But in that particular instance that you're referring to, um, so what they would do is with these lions that were rescued from like either can coaching incidents or, or whatever the case was, if they're babies, like they'll, they'll have enclosures that are small and then they'll, they'll broaden the enclosure and then they'll introduce prey. And then the final enclosure is like three to five acres. That if they hunt their prey, then they'll end up releasing them to the wild. And if not, then they, they, they don't and they just stay there as a rescue and, and whatever the case is. And, and so those animals, are, are the ones who, who have become uh, much more adapted to, to having human interaction. And, and it's still a wild animal. It's still something you have to truly respect, And um, but you can't act like prey. It's the same thing with diving with alligators or crocs or anything like that. Um, but uh, but that's how I was able to have those interactions so you, over a long cor- course of time, for sure. So you dove with alligators and crocodiles? Yeah, I know it sounds kind of crazy, man. Oh, no, well, hold on. First of all, yeah, it does. Ain't nobody (laughs) sane going to go jump in a damn pit with an alligator or a crocodile. (laughs) 
not happening. Might as well just play picky poo with the damn grizzly bear. See, see, but here's the deal though, because we're from Texas. We're from West Texas, and like alligators and crocodiles are, we don't have them here. So (laughs) you know, we automatically think that every alligator is just gonna have us for lunch. What's going to? Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a good point, man. And you know, like. So I've done these dives all over the world, and I'm an avid shark. I've always wanted to like do shark dives. I've done every species of shark except for great whites, which I met on my itinerary for uh, to do outside of cage with a great white. But um, I was I was like, man, you know, what about gators and crocs? You know, and, and so I looked into it, and oddly enough, nobody does host any dives for gators and crocs. Oh, no <laughs> oh that's because there's no customers. Like, Probably not a big market. No shit. <laughs> yeah. So, so, anyways, I did find one guy who, who does who has these interactions with these gators. His name is Chris Gilletti down in, in the Everglades, and I contacted him, reached out, and and um, and ended up like um, you know he, he kind of gave me some some different you know uh, training, kind of introduced me to uh, a pool with some nuisance gators. Want to see how I interact with them? Taught me a lot about their behavior. You know, when their 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 movement is based on their line of sight, so when they're shifting in the water, they're actually hunting. They're moving to, to get their line of sight, and, and when they go down, you go down. If you you're splashing or you're making any type of erratic movement, any type of movement that is, is indicative of prey, then you put yourself in a really bad situation. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the same type of thing. Giving off that energy, with, you know, uh, with any frantic movement or anything like that. Well, I'll another guy, and, and him and I. His name is also Chris Clinton. And um, I mean, he had been attacked by a gator. And, I mean, it's crazy. I got twelve feet, twelve, 12 footer off. And his incredible story. You know, um, he had. I was like, man, I want that scar, bro. It's so sick. You want that <laughs> um, scar? Throughout his whole path, that is ridiculous. I'm like, man, that's definitely. Does, I'm sure that's done done you well at the bars, man. In <laughs> Key West. But anyway, so so um, he's like, all right, man, when you go into the water, you, you got to move really slowly and deliberately. He says, when they come at you, I was like, wait, when, when they come at you? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, when, when they come at you, like, there's no interference. Like, when they come at you, he says, um, he says, there's two points of dominance on their body. There's one in the back base of their skull and the base of their tail. And he gave me, like, this little U-shaped paw. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this thing, man? You know? <laughs> you know, you got to, when they come at you, you just kind of hook them underneath the mouth and redirect them. And then he comes in and hits them in the back of the head or in the tail. And they just, you right off. And so my very first dive, man, I go, I'm, I'm we're going into the Everglades, and this nine and a half, per, and, and typically they're, they're, they're more of the prolific surface hunters, so that's why you go down. And, and, um, and this guy was coming right on the surface, right for me, just within, like, you know, probably seven feet from me, and I'm going to do the little hook maneuver, and straight pucker factor going on. It's not a huge kid, but nine and a half foot, big monkey, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he comes in, just does exactly what he said. He hits him right in the back of the head, and just shoots right off, and, and he looks over at me, he's like, how is that for an introduction? I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 so, uh, uh, yeah, I like, I, I don't know if I'm adrenaline junkie or anything like that, but I definitely like pushing it a little bit. I usually, like, I don't get all in built you know, doing skydives or those type of dives, and, uh, but um, but you know, I stay. I, I, it makes me calmer. If that makes any sense, and more focused. And, and, um, and so I did maybe five or six of those guys. And, and the last one I did was in Zimbabwe with some crocs. And I and that was the last one I think I'm going to do, man. To be perfectly honest with you, I was like, I I have put myself in a bad situation right here. <laughs> and, um, 
I was up in Gatwe and and my, my teammate was filming and he's like, I'm filming my buddy uh, about to get torn up by crotch. And so um, when I went into the water, four of them, I kind of were moving in, like kind of converging on me, not fast, but I went down, I swam in a different direction, everything I've been taught, and I come back up. And, and so I did, I did that for 45 minutes. The water was super murky and eerie. Fuck. I was like, this is such a stupid idea, man. Yeah. <laughs> it took me 45 minutes to move those crafts to a point where I could get back up on the bank. And, um, and, you know, and I was like, okay, uh, I think I've, I've had a, uh, my experience with, and the crowds are more aggressive as well than the gators. So, but, yeah. I don't, I don't understand that one. And there's some things people do on here, but swimming with a freaking crocodile muddy water, gosh almighty. Oof. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, I can help you with that great white shark deal. No, man, don't play with me. No, I'm telling you right now. Here's what you do. You go next June, or no, July, the end of July, you go to Chatham, Massachusetts, and they've got a a lighthouse there, and they got an inlet that comes in there, and they got thousands of seals on an island right off. You got people with watching you. There's a beach there, and they got signs all over it with do not swim in the water, great wax are feeding on the ship. And them some bitches are in there, and and they tag them every day. And it take your scuba gear, walk right off that beach right out there, and you can swim with them bastards all day long. <laughs> that sounds like terrible advice, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> it it's, it is horrible advice, but if somebody wants to swim with some great whites, they're right there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm down there. I, just, I don't know if I had this weird just desire to, again, engage myself with the most apex predators on this planet. Man. Like, there's, there's no dude out there that gives me the heebie-jeebies or makes me feel uncomfortable. Like, I'm not saying anything special about myself, but the government has invested a significant amount of resources to ensure that I'm really capable in those situations when I face those threats. But, you know, I don't know. I just uh, I have such a love for them and respect for them. And um, and I, I kind of want to just do educational people for people, too, like respect them, you know, and, and, uh, but there's no need to fear them and, and kill them and all these different things, you know, so. What about a polar bear? Oh man, that's like my favorite animal, man. Like, they, I, I, so a real strong. I was when I was living in Europe. I was uh, competing in dog sled racing up in Norway, and you know I had a really stressful job. You know when I was there working as a contractor, and, and so that was my my way of decompressing. I go out and and um, and it was just me and the dogs underneath the northern lights for five six days. Not another sign of life, man. And it was just so. Just, uh, I, I would just go get centered, man, and, and it was just a really great way for me to decompress. And, and so, again, me not ever settling for for mediocrity in anything in my life was to do a lot of like you know dog sled mushing is the Iditarod. And so, I have a buddy of mine. His name's Jeffrey, he's a former SEAL. Look him up, he's a freaking badass dude. He's kind of my pioneer. He's he's um, training right now for the Iditarod. And um, and so I went and visited him, and you know, got to got the lay of the land up there in Alaska. And um and uh and so my 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 desire is to is to move up there, you know, within a few years and, and open up a dog kennel, uh, train my dogs up, do some some races up there, and uh and have those interactions with some polar bears and some moose and some orcas and all that. Man, and wildlife's incredible up there, man. Some awesome hunting and elk and all that. So. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't think interactions with the polar bear are going to be really good. <laughs> those things are bad, man. I mean, you know, they're, they're just so massive, you know. Yeah, I guess they you know, they say they use your favorite animals are animals that you can't have, you know, reflection of those are they're big and white and <laughs> they're in the block, right? So you see so I have a little bit too high myself, but this is the animal I relate to the most. <laughs> so so you li- you lived in Norway? Um, I, I lived uh, throughout Europe. I lived in Paris, I lived in Frankfurt, I lived in Geneva. Um, but I would I would travel up to Trollhill in Norway, very north above the Arctic Circle, very northern part of Norway, and um, you know I would do that for for the dog sled. Maybe once every month or month or two, or every two or three months I'd go up there. But I was also training for for some mountaineering. Um, you know, it's weird when I was leaving the hospital bed, the doctors told me I wouldn't walk in. And I was, I'm a pretty laid back chill guy. The last thing they said that I was like, I was just pissed. I was like, man, you don't even know. No media is telling me these things. Like, and, um, and I said, no, I'm not going to walk in. I'm going to run again. I'm going to go back to my team. Then I'm going to go climb Mount Everest. And I don't know why I said that, but I said it. <laughs> and so I've never done any mountaineering. And um, I also like military stuff. And so um, I, I started um, pursuing the civil service. I got into technical. I do my technical um, uh, climbing and the Dolomites in, in Italy. I do my ice climbing training in, in Iceland, and then uh, my altitude training in Switzerland. And uh, I was getting ready for Kilimanjaro and Elbrus and Leblanc, and, and so pretty cool. That's just it's. So, what were your injuries? We haven't we haven't talked about that yet. What were your injuries uh, when they told you that you would never walk again? Yeah, um, I was injured October twentieth, twenty ten, and. I'll, I'll skip all the, you know, a lot of the the, the story. It's, it, it is a long story, but essentially we were in about a six-hour firefight with Taliban, and um, you know, uh, a couple of uh, of our allies, comrades, uh, were killed that night. Uh, my horse was killed that night. Um, I ended up being injured again while uh, supporting combat operations there in um, eastern Afghanistan. Um, I was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, uh, five spinal cord injuries, so uh, C2, T6, T10, T12, L5, um, three disarticulated ribs. I both my shoulders were injured. I had torn labrum, torn rotator cuff. I had uh, peripheral femoral frame nerve damage in my right arm, right leg, and diaphragm were paralyzed. Uh, I just had a slew of injuries. I, I was in uh, multiple different polytrauma units. Um, I was sent from, from there to law school in Germany. Uh, I fell under the SOCOM Care Coalition, and they took incredible care of me. They were just, they were so, it's just every detail of my life to, to, to help me, you know, transition to this recovery phase of, of my, of, of, you know, chapter of my life. And, and so, um, I was in 11 different hospitals total, um, flew me from, from Washington once I was stable to, uh, Walter Reed, Walter Reed to Lejeune, Lejeune to Eisenhower, Eisenhower. On clinic, and that's where I spent the, the most of my time in, in my, my inpatient time. And then um, and I saw a lot of progress there. But what really gave me my career back in that transfer down to, to Tampa, was BJ there. And then um, I was, after I was walking again, um, I was selected to go through a program called the Eagle Fund, which um, at the time was called Athletes Performance, and now it's called Ixos. And they had a, a, a program for military special operations guys who've been injured or in combat who want to go back to serve. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and no other reason you have to have that. You, you can't be too injured or there's nothing they can do for you. And you have to be injured the most when you meet the criteria for the program. And then the third piece is you have to have a desire to go back and serve. And so um, that's what I wanted. And that's what I did. And, and I spent about 13 months there. And they gave me my career back then. I mean, they're truly like the elite of the medical career field. And they're just, they're, they're, attention to detail and their communication with their, their methodologies were just absolutely world class. So what was it that, I mean, when you hear the, the diagnosis, you know, you're paralyzed, you'll never walk again. What was it that, was it just the rehab? Was it the mindset? What was it that, that got you up and going again? Man, that's a great question, bro. Um, for me, I think, um, I, I never believed it. I never heard what they, what they said. I never I listened to all the naysayers throughout my life. This goes for anybody listening to this. Um, anybody who says that they, they, you can't do anything. Like, if I, if I listen to you, that wouldn't accomplish shit in my life. You know what I mean? Right. And, um, and so when I heard these doctors, I was, you know, whatever, over and over again. Like, yeah, it's disturbing. It's actually here. here. And, and I felt so trapped within myself because I keep moving. Um, I have very limited functionality, but I also couldn't articulate my words I, with my traumatic brain injury. I went to cognitive rehab, I went to speech therapy, um, to be able to formulate sentences again. Um, it was just, again, man, it was a humbling uh, phase of my life. Again, I was like, I had to be broken in every dynamic, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, to, to really, like, implement humility into my character. And, um, and so what happened was, um, every night, you know, after I kind of got the lay of the land after a week or so, um, they would close down. It was the only inpatient rehab facility of its kind um, in, in the country. Uh, and so they were seven to five. I was doing physical therapy, again, cognitive therapy, speech therapy, uh, occupational therapy, recreational therapy, all these different things. And they closed the gym down. And these guys had nothing to do. And they, I mean, you know, they had to do some little board games or whatever, but. It's, you know, they closed down early, and, and that's it. So I have a whole night, and I'm like, man, what the heck? So I went and stayed on the key. I remember a big old, big old black lady, man, sweet, sweet as can be, man, probably pushing like, you know, 250. <laughs> <laughs> and she, I, I go up to her, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, come on, man. Like, you know, the doctors, the doctors uh, have, you know, have me doing all these programs. I got nothing to do. You know, is there anywhere I can get a key to the gym? And, and she's like real resistant at first. And she, I just kept, kept on snoozing her and, you know, and she's, uh, she's like, okay, baby, here you go. She slid me the key and the rest of history. From, so from 6 to midnight, 6 to 1 a.m. every night, I'm in that gym, busting my ass, trying to teach myself how to walk. You know, I, I was in a wheelchair at the time. I wheeled down there. And um, and for I just months and months and months and months, every night, 6 to midnight, 6 to 1 a.m. You know, and what was interesting is I went there. I, I had no desire make friends, I didn't want to, I, 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 I went there for myself, I went through to get better so I could get back down range and go do my job, and, um, and my, uh, I remember going by this one, one particular Marines room, <clears throat> it was the last room on the right before I got into the hallway to get to the elevators to go down to the gym, and, um, and every, you know, the first couple nights, I, I walked by, his door was open, and he just checked out his double amputee, young kid, 22 years old, wasn't watching TV, wasn't reading a book, just kind of popcorn on the ceiling, you know what I mean? And, and so I just remember feeling compelled as a, you know, non uh, commission officer, as a leader, as uh, a guy who came from, from, you know, special operations resident, or, you know, guys view you a, a different way. 
um, to just go and, and build a relationship with this guy. Like, this guy's continuously told, uh, baby, you know, baby's going to be okay. Things are going to be all right. Oh, bullshit, man. No, it's not. But what are you willing to do about it? You right. know, like, it's not going to be okay if you just let it come to you. You need to take charge of the situation. And so, and after I built a little rapport, I'm like, all right, man, get the hell up. It's time to go hit the gym. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I remember him looking at me like, who's this guy talking to me like this? But that, <laughs> that was the language that he remembered as a Marine. That's the language he responded to as a Marine. And I'll tell you what, man, once um, he became mentally healthy, his body, body followed suit. And his, his uh, recovery was exponentially faster. Like, it, it's just incredible uh, after he just found that motivation again. And, and, and it was really a special moment. It was a emotional moment when I left the hospital. Because by the time I left, I was leading a caravan of about 13 to 14 guys in wheelchairs and crutches and whatever. And we all sneaking down into the gym and trying to teach each other how to work on it. And when I left the hospital, those guys all said a bunch of things to me that, that I'll always remember for the rest of my life. And it was just a special time, but it was a real testament to how powerful the human mind is. And if you can harness that and focus it into one sole mission uh, of what you can accomplish, being regardless of what you're told you can do. That's, that's amazing. I just gives you chills hearing that. If the mind is a powerful mm. thing, I mean, it really is. It is, man. And I think it a lot of people. Is. I think a lot of people kind of underestimate it. How powerful it can be. No doubt, man. No doubt. You know, the, the thing that, that the word that comes to mind so much when it comes to to, to people and what is wasteful, man. Like the, the, with the gifts and the, the talent and the capability they they have. Um, you know, one of the words that I hate the most is potential. Yeah, I hate when I hear potential because all that tells me is that okay, oh yeah, you know, but he has so much potential. All that tells me is that he is slothful and he is lazy in the gifts that he's been given, and he's settled for mediocrity in his life. Yeah, he's settled for the, the easy path, man. Like, like you know, uh, the, the guy who's putting in the work who doesn't have that raw talent is a guy who's going to win at the end of the day. He's a guy who's going to be prepared, you know. So that's right. It's all there. You just got to have that blue-collar mentality, man. You know, and today was uh, leg day for me. I didn't want to do it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I. But then, I, you know, I kind of got the, you, you know, you play, you, your mind will play tricks on you and everything. And you're like, ah, you know, take today off, do them tomorrow. But, you know, there comes a point where you kind of stay. I knew we had this podcast with you today, and I was kind of like, you know what? I'm going to fucking work out because there's a lot of guys that wish that they could still work out oh yeah i love that i love that mentality dude that's awesome i mean it's it's truly is a privilege to get up and move your ass there's so many people that have fought and died for this that would you know or been greatly injured that would love to just you know work yeah, out like it, have so a regular true, workout that's, that's so true and, you know and i hear that kind of stuff all the time man. oh i said you're a hero man i am not a hero i i'm so fortunate to know heroes my story all my stories are, they're not about me doing some, some heroic shit, man. It's stories about me just getting my ass beat over and over <laughs> in <different laughs> capacities. But, but this is the thing, is that service, like, when I hear thank you for your service, thank you, like, they're all, they, they all, you know, for guys that have served, and, and it always is special to hear that, no doubt. But I'll caveat that with, with, it, just because you wore a uniform does not make you a hero. It does right. not make you a badass, and it does not make you entitled to anything. It's called service for a reason. I, and and boy, I'm so I'm so glad that I got injured and, and was exposed to so many altruistic and benevolent organizations and people who have dedicated their lives to just helping other people. I've met so many civilians and people who didn't serve who have done so much more for their families, for their communities, and for their countries in the name of service. 
than most, the majority of people who, who wore a uniform. Again, just because you wore a uniform does not make you a badass or a hero or a title or anything. I mean, seven, what is it, like 11% of the military, 7-11% of the military is combat arms. Maybe maybe half of those guys have been deployed. Maybe half of that half have actually um, been engaged in combat. Maybe half of that half of that half have actually engaged in enemy combat. And maybe 1% of that half of that half of that half has actually done something that would warrant Valorous combination with the title hero. You know what I mean? Right. There's a small percentage of guys, man. So when I hear you know, people say things like, "Don't, don't elevate certain um on on a on a, 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 a like yes, they did raise their hand and they did say that they will do whatever it takes, you know, uh, you know, to protect this country, both you know, with enemies, both foreign and domestic, and all that. And that's that's beautiful and has a powerful vow to take. But again, man, I've just been exposed to so many incredible people who have done dedicate their entire lives to just helping other people who are just they're civilians. You know what I mean? Right. So, Last and point. The fact is, like, there's there's different capacities for for of, of service too. You know, like uh, it just it just is what it is. Like I, I have respect for anybody that, that raised their hand and took that vow, and I uh, I'll I'll gladly buy them a beer. Um, but it's. Uh, you know, when you got guys who've invested their hearts and minds to become an ACO or an army ranger or a Marshawk operator or a dump operator or whatever, like that's another that's a different level of service right that right there. What you're putting your mind and your body through is absolutely incredible. So so my you know, my I, I just have a uh, different ad, a set a level of admiration for for those guys. I could go on all day with you. I'm gonna. I got one more question for you. We're gonna have to have you back on because none of the shit that I had written down before this have I gotten to. But when was the last time you're a badass? You're a bad motherfucker. I'll give you that. When was the last time that you know you had your ass whipped? <laughs> oh man, I got so many stories for this. <laughs> the last I, time, um, the most recent one. Okay, the last. Time. <laughs> um, and likewise, gentlemen, man, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you guys. You can, you can. Call me anytime. You know I'm in Texas. So we're definitely linked up for sure. Yes, but, um, absolutely. Um, so, so we had um, the, the first story that comes to mind. And again, I got so many stories of, of just you know being on the receiving end. Of, and this is the thing is when, when you, you continue to expose to different levels of training, at different levels, like you're continuously exposed to guys with more experience within those career fields that are much more capable than you are. And you know you're talking about. I'm so fortunate having been exposed to that less than one percent of those kids incredibly badass dudes, you know what I mean? And and but the thing is I mean, I hear guys talk about oh, I, you know, well, yeah, I got a fight, I took on four guys or whatever. I'm like, man, bullshit, dude. Like like unless you train as a fighter, unless you dedicate your body you know, your your body to become a weapon man then then you're you're not capable of, of holding it down in those situations on that level. You know what I mean? So the first story that comes to mind is is when I my first professional bout in Thailand. <laughs> So I had a cut laser for Muay Thai. I never fought Muay Thai as a discipline. And in the May gyms, you know, I was delving, you know, dabbling into some of the training. And it's funny, like, these guys have been trained since they were kids, you know, into, to, you know, eat a bowl of rice at the end of the night. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, their legs are like freaking baseball bats. So I go into, um, to, uh, to this fight and, and um, it was, uh, you know, I was in the gym. Just kind of preparing my. Uh, uh, I think I was in the fight camp for maybe about a month or so, and the thing I was most uh, nervous about was what's called the Y Kung Ram. It's um, uh, 
one cool going building, which is um, uh, the dance that they do in honor of their gym and their uh, uh, their trainer. <laughs> I got to do this freaking dance. My, my, my dance is like, I don't know, a minute long. <laughs> my opponent comes in. He's a former Lucanese champ. Like, he's a legit fighter, you know. And um, and his is like seven or eight minutes long. And, like, I'm over there sweating in Bangla Stadium in Qatar or, or in Phuket. Like, <laughs> like I, I'm like, you know, nerves as heck. Like, you know, I'll pull up some videos of this guy just cracking dude's skulls. I'm like, ah, all right, man. So, again, gauging myself with some of the apex predators on this planet, right? Mm. So, um, the first round starts. And um and it's supposed to be very tick for tack, man. Like, you know, he eat those lace for these strikes and so forth. It's very traditional, it's respectful. This guy had no love for foreign fighters. Um he throws a high kick, then he goes and throw an axe kick, you know, trying to break my shoulder or my clavicle. Um, but it's okay because I, you know, I stopped it with my head and uh <laughs> <laughs> wide open man. I looked at the like I had a spider with blood just going down my face, you know, any head was like bleed profusely. So I am just completely outclassed, like with the leg strikes, with the tie clenches. Um, like, you know, I'm essentially going in there as an amateur. I, I was a pro level fighter, you know, on an MMA level, an amateur level for it strictly discipline of Muay Thai fight and Thai boxing, right? And so, um, you know, going against a, a freaking world-class champ. Well, the thing of it is, they don't train their hands as, as dedicated as they are to their to their leg strikes. Right. And, like, I would land, like, a four-shot combination, and the crowd would, you know, like, you, you might hear, like, two little claps. This <laughs> guy <laughs> would throw a high kick or a couple of knees, wouldn't even connect, and the crowd goes crazy. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm just on the receiving end. My weight was complete black. Like I, I posted a picture on my Instagram of uh, of uh, after my first fight. It's completely black and blue, just gnarly. And um, and so at the end of the first round, I go in and somehow survive the first round. The, my trainer spoke very broken English. And he's like, he he doesn't like foreign fighters. <laughs> yeah, thank, you think so, man? Thank you. Yeah. Do you have anything else for me? I you know, appreciate and so, um, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, the, the second round starts pretty much out of the first first round ended with me being on the receiving end of a bunch of uh, you know heinous strikes and and um, he made kind of an amateur boxing mistake. He uh, he went to um, flip the ropes on me uh, to my perceived weak side. I cut the rope, uh, cut the ring off on him and, and landed a sharp low uppercut. He dropped like an accordion. I'm like, oh my god, hell yeah, I'll go to the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, sir, down faster, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, please don't, I'm like, pray, like, please don't let this guy get up, man. And um, and sure enough, count him out. My first fight was a was a victory after I absolutely got annihilated. But I, I mean, I truly got my ass <laughs> But um, but I kind of, I got him, I got him slipping a little bit. So that's, that's sometimes that's all it takes, man. Yeah, man. Well, hey, we appreciate. It. We hate to cut her short. Been a great, great, great show. We cut appreciate it very much. Well. Oh man, it's we, my pleasure, guys. We've we've taken up enough of this guy's time. Busy man, yep. I, <laughs> Seth. Man, I, I I really appreciate you. And like I said, uh, if you're ever in Texas, don't hesitate to, uh, to get a hold of us. We'll link up, and I, we'd love to uh, do this again with you sometime. Man, I love Texas. I love Texas people. I love the culture out there. I, I, I kind of even consider a second home, man. And next time I'm out there, I'm definitely going to uh, look you guys up, bro. And, and if there's ever anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to ask. Uh, feel free to hit me up anytime. You want to do it again, and it will be happy. Awesome, man. Well, you go, uh, you go enjoy the rest of your day, and we appreciate you. 
All right, brother. I'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, Perfect. thank you, sir. Thank you. See you guys. Seth Yon, ladies and gentlemen. Man's done it all. Been all over the place. Choo. Very inspirational. From wheelchair to swimming with crocodiles. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. I don't understand that because I hope God put enough fear in my brain for me not to do stupid shit. <laughs> and that to me is, I just don't understand that. Gosh almighty. Whew. Crazy. It takes a big set of balls to do something like that. Big, big set of balls. I understand like Sean Dwyer crab fishing. He's making a living. Right. I understand guys doing things when they're getting paid to go just swim with crocodiles. I do not understand that. Mm. But I think a lot of that phobia is us not being around. Right, right. Bears, alligators, crocodiles, sharks. <clears throat> we don't have them here, so I'm worried about them. People that are in the ocean all the time don't worry about sharks. No. To me, every time I step foot in the ocean, I'm thinking about a shark biting my ass. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Um, he's a badass. Done a lot of things. Y'all can look him up on Wikipedia or... He's got uh, a great Instagram page. Instagram at Seth John. J A H N. Yep. Sad. Always look him up. Uh, it's nine eleven, folks. Remember, you know, I, I've never forgotten not that day, and like most of you, you haven't either. The younger people probably don't get it because they don't remember they were little kids. But it was a very, very touching, horrible, horrific day in our history, and one I'll never forget. And I'm assuming that's the way it felt December seventh, nineteen forty one, when people heard about the Japanese cowardly attacking us at Pearl Harbor, and that's what happened to us today on September 11th. Some cowards attacked us. Um, we're still fighting a war over that. Um, that's you know that's that's a whole other deal, and I ain't going to get into all that. But what happened that day? A lot of innocent people lost their lives. Horrible day, and it's just a bad day. Not else, nothing I can say about that. Anyways, God bless each and every one of y'all, and thank you for listening. We do appreciate it very much.